0: So that was music from 1544 from Spain, the Spain of Philip II. And today we're at podcast number 11, which I'm calling A Merry Bunch of Martyrs. After months of illness punctuated by moments of improvement, death had finally seemed to catch up to the young king. And aware of the end and concerned over the state of reformation, Edward came up with what would be known as a device for the succession. This would, for lack of male issue, as he initially wrote, lead him to circumvent his sisters, turning again to have each recognized as a bastard. And it was under Northumberland's watch that the decision was made to turn to the line of Jane Grey, who was now to become the legitimate heir. Jane's rule was, from the beginning, met with suspicion— as we mentioned last time, she was a daughter-in-law of Northumberland, which meant that she had significant political and military backing. But many saw her claim to the throne as a tenuous one. And even if Edward's final device was to return his sisters to being bastards, there were plenty in England who saw both daughters as legitimate, as legitimate heirs to the Tudor line, as Henry VIII's daughters, who were, of course, alive and well. And here is where the sentiments of previous failed rebellions from Edward's reign mattered most. For Mary lost little time recognizing what Jane's imminent crowning meant. And so, fearing for her own state, she fled to Norfolk, where she knew she could get support. She could rally support from many of the leading aristocrats and members of her own family. And support showed up in droves, much of it coming from the quote-unquote common people as well, from the sometimes rude multitude that had elevated Ket, and from the rude multitude likewise that had led in Cornwall and Devon in terms of the rebellion against the Book of Common Prayer. This was thus a manifestation of many of the concerns that had been in place, the support for Mary, of opposition to Northumberland who had grown too powerful, too overmighty as a subject, and indeed to the Northumberland who had tried to send off and ultimately did succeed in having Seymour executed. And Seymour, who was of course a one-time champion of the common people during the crisis over enclosure, it was Northumberland who had ultimately sent him to the chopping block and this was remembered when it came time to support Mary. And then there was still the matter of Jane, of Jane, who was largely seen as an illegitimate replacement, a female replacement for other females with obvious and closer blood rights. She was Jane the imposter, of course, Jane the puppet to Northumberland. But perhaps more than anything, and most obviously, was her religion. Jane was the evangelical choice, and not a reflection then of the will of English people, a people who were still overwhelmingly conservative in their beliefs at this time. And so it was the case that England, and indeed the English, could side with one of two queens, each of which was a clear proponent of a separate religion. And would, who would it be then? Would it be the Catholic or the Reformed queen? We know, of course, that it would be Mary, the Catholic queen, who would gain the upper hand. It would soon be Mary who found the greatest part of the will of the people. And this soon became apparent, both by popular demonstration, as she had found in Norfolk, as with councils to the monarchy. Mary was elevated to the crown, riding a popular wave of support that saw her accepted first by the people, and then by the court and the ruling classes, by grandees and the whole lot. And although none could really know this at the time, this would have significant consequences for belief, of course, for the state of the Church of England and in time with how worship would unfold, how the liturgy would look. All seemed fine for a time. One of Mary's first acts in 1553 was to pardon her opponents. That is save for Northumberland and his most loyal supporters. They went to the block. But what of Lady Jane? An imposter queen now, Jane had been pushed onto the throne without her choice, really. Again, a puppet leader for Northumberland. She could thus be pardoned for the time. She would eventually suffer Northumberland's fate, however, but ma more on this in a minute. Now crowned and the head of the church she wished to see returned to Rome, Mary sought the best path forward. As she had turned to her cousin, the Holy Roman Emperor, in the past, when she tried to flee by ship to the continent, when it became clear that her younger brother hoped to continue with his reforms, Mary would again turn to the Holy Roman Emperor when she was crowned queen. And Charles V was, of course, at this point, her cousin. And as her cousin, he had what he saw as a great idea for her. Ideally, as queen, she could maybe marry his son, Philip, the most Catholic Prince Philip, but also a relation by family. And this plan would come with myriad problems. Marrying her cousin's son would bring too close a family relation. It was so close, in fact, that it would require a papal dispensation. And this would be fine, this would be easy enough to acquire. Uh, it would, however, be a serious problem for the English people. English people were not as concerned with the matter of her degree of separation from Philip as they were of having a foreign king, and especially a king of Spain. Having a foreign king on English soil would drive the old alliance, the alliance between France and Scotland, into overdrive, potentially. Allying with Spain would, in essence, open the door for an endless attack from France and Scotland. And the English were obviously in no way ready for this. The prospect of Mary's taking a Spanish king drove the people once again into action. They had just supported her, the common people, now common people were rising up again in opposition to this marriage that was proposed by Charles V. And in this case, it was an uprising in Kent that gained the most traction. Led by Thomas Wyatt, rebels marched on to London where they met city forces known as Whitecoats who were there to hold them off but instead defected to their cause A Spanish king was indeed this problematic. It looked to be a life of subjugation, again, to a foreign prince, and this was enough to get many to defect. In the end, only some, not enough, would come out in opposition against Mary, however. And since Wyatt could not enter the city, the gates were eventually blocked to him, or win over more, he would eventually stall out and fail. And this failure led to him being captured and tortured and then executed on Tower Hill, where he was quartered as a rebel. In other words, his limbs were sent to the quarters of the city. Ninety others would be executed as well, but less uh, gloriously and by Tyburn. But what Wyatt had initially wanted was nothing short of radical also. Ideally, he would not just prevent a Spanish king from coming to English shores, but he would see Mary removed potentially from the throne, and as many thought in favor of her sister, Princess Elizabeth. More than this, he would see all who were arrested and imprisoned for the religious beliefs set free. This was another idea that he had, that those who had already been put in prison for anything in terms of opposition, in terms of their views, would would be set free, and this was another radical idea. And his torture was ultimately pursued not because of the radical nature of this idea of releasing people from prison, but rather as an attempt to try to get him to confess and implicate Elizabeth in his designs to overthrow Mary. Doing so would, of course, put Elizabeth's life in jeopardy, and she would be, at this point, again, successor. So this was to the benefit, perhaps, of Mary. It was from this point, moreover, this confession never came to light. But it was from this point, from the point of a plot against monarchy, as opposed to a rebellion championing social conditions or beliefs, that matters took a dramatic turn in terms of Mary's reign. Opposition to the crown was not simply, after this point, a matter of treason. It was potentially a matter of regicide, right? A matter of Mary's estimation now of an attack on her life that was as much an attack on the crown and an attack on what it meant to be a champion of the Catholic faith. So this was not just a threat to social order. It was a threat to the life of the monarch because of their religion. And for rebels, it looked much more like a tyrannicide, potentially, a doing away with, of a religious tyrant, And with these dynamics in play by early 1554, the bloodshed that has often been evoked by historians as an attempt to characterize Mary's reign really did start to flow. Jane Grey and Guilford, previously allowed to live, now seemed more obvious threats, and both went to the block in February. Elizabeth, at this point, even though there was no confession, was made a prisoner held under house arrest at Woodstock and so in July of 1554, Mary and Philip of Spain were, in fact, wed. And with him, Philip brought a Spanish retinue. In two years, he would inherit the crowns of and Castile, along with claims to the Americas. And despite rather specific marriage treaties that had barred Philip to English possessions after his life, or indeed prevented England from sending military aid to his father, Charles V., many in England had come to associate this foreign king now with thraldom to Habsburg Spain. Would it simply be the case that the Habsburgs would continue to gobble up England like other European thrones? Or would, in, in other questions, would it the dreaded Spanish Inquisition be imported to English shores? Uh, these concerns had a way of stoking English patriotism and of helping to harden the resolve of, so-called, of the so called faithful, the godly. But there were, for the time being, fewer patriots than conservatives in England, fewer reformed than quintessentially still Catholic English people. Indeed, when it came time to vote on the question of the liturgy in Parliament in October 1553, and the idea of returning England to an earlier version of the Mass, more than three fourths of the House of Commons voted in favor of repealing changes made by Edward. An ominous fourth of the house refused, which suggested a, de- a very devoted minority that would oppose return to Rome, and which, the ranks of which would in fact grow over time. By the end of November 1554, England would be reconciled with Rome. Little more than a month later, and the royal supremacy itself was undone by repeal. Law was one matter. But how, it had to be asked, would England restore its images, its paintings, its stained glass, and its ornate wooden rood screens? Simply claiming that transubstantiation was a fact, that the blood and body of Christ were in fact present as opposed to simply symbolic, was one thing. Restoring the thousands upon thousands of objects that had been confiscated, pilfered, sold, or painted over in England's many churches was another matter altogether. It simply wasn't possible in many ways. Changing the faith of people took time, no matter the direction. And how, moreover, could priests claim legitimacy now that they were to be reconciled with Rome? One year, the Pope was proclaimed the Antichrist by the king. The next, the Pope was once again being called the man on earth closest to God. If allowed to take their wives under Edward VI, priests were now to give them up under Mary. It seemed that if the coinage had been debased terribly under both Henry and Edward, it was now the very legitimacy of the Church of England and of its priests that was being debased under Mary. This all had a way of adding, addling the brain, if not undermining matters of faith altogether. And consider this also, many English people had no recollection at this point of what the capital C Church looked like. The Acts of Supremacy, if you'll recall, passed in 1534. This is some 20 years prior. And the church had been steadily dismantled thereafter during the late 1530s and 1540s. So many had grown up so that they could only remember the church as it was in process of reforming. So it seemed to many that the only consistency in the church was change itself. And what then of those who refused to see the clock set back? of those who believed that the restoration of allegiance to Rome or of transubstantiation were anathema to faith? Did these matters not pave a road to damnation as well? Many, in light of Mary's Catholic restoration, fled for the continent. Some would go on to join active reformed communities. This would bring some closer yet to the newest ideas on the continent, including those of John Calvin, of a synodal church structure of Calvinism more than simply expel reformers. And it is estimated that nearly a thousand left England at this time. The decision to depart built important pathways for communication with leading reformed communities in Switzerland and Germany in particular. The intention would ultimately thus strengthen reform and would provide a model for later generations whose consciences, would send them off to new lands as well. So we get this model developed in which people are understanding that they can leave one nation for another based on their faith, something that's going to be important uh, in the coming years in terms of the Tudors. But it's also something that would, of course, come back 65 years later with the Mayflower in 1620. And just as Edward's reforms may have driven Catholics to private worship, the Marian reforms also drove England's godly underground making their religious faiths, the religions and their faiths, secret. It was for them to hear the word behind closed doors now, as priests years earlier could hold private Latin masses. It was from here, from the foreign communities to the English underground, that there would form an important dynamic of religious faith against official policy, of clandestine meetings and clandestine print networks, of books smuggled into England on ships, and of candlelight readings of liturgy, or candlelight readings of scripture, excuse me, in vernacular. And then, of course, there would be those famous few who would refuse to conform to the Marian reforms, those who would refuse to remove their caps during Mass, or who, worse yet, would refuse to attend Mass altogether. And then there were even others. There were the fewer yet in high positions who would not adopt the new liturgy. These individuals stood out as dangerous examples of opposition. For Mary, it would be best in many cases if they were removed altogether. But how to remove them? To torture for recantation was probably best, and then to burn alive in public, doing as much might send a valuable message. And audiences, when it came time for this, would attend, arriving to see their church protected as some saw it, or to witness the martyrdom of those they championed for their faith. Many burnings took place at this time. At Smithfield, the old market of London, the so-called belly of the beast, where hundreds gathered daily to move livestock into the city. It was a popular place for burning martyrs there. Good friends would show up to these events uh, with dry wood, hoping to reach the execution and chuck the wood on the fire to speed up the process. Enemies would bring green boughs to prolong the pain, to throw on the fire, to create smoke. But martyrs were burnt in many places, in Canterbury, and Kent, in Ely, Cambridgeshire, for instance. For Mary, the fires would cleanse the spread of the sickness of heretical belief. For the godly, it would affirm faith and conviction. And so let's end today with three high-profile Marian martyrs, and in this case in Oxford. The three were Bishop Hugh Latimer, Bishop Nicholas Ridley, and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who you all know well enough by now. Burned together at the stake in Oxford, Latimer devout as always, was said to tell Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. For the Archbishop, finding resolve was somewhat more difficult, but he did indeed find it. When he went to the stake to be burnt six months after Latimer and Ridley, Cranmer was expected to give a public Recantation to make a statement recanting his beliefs. And so it seemed that he would rise into the pulpit that day to speak to many and offer this, this recantation that he had claimed he would give. But in this case, it was not a recantation as the authorities thought it would be. Instead, it was a recantation of his prior recantations. He told all who had gathered that he would first burn the flesh of his hand the hand with which he had written his prior recantations. And then he stated aloud, And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy, an antichrist with all his false doctrine. So Cranmer had surprised everyone. And when he went to the stake, he followed through with what he claimed he would do. And he held his hand into the fire, burning it first. He had then echoed the sentiments of, his last real king, Edward, who would also liken the Pope to Antichrist. Thus went three of nearly 300 who would be remembered as Marian martyrs. They would not soon be forgotten for their faith. But more on this, more on the end of Mary's reign and on England's new queen, That was more Gothic music, again, from the Victorian Albert, in that case, Ave Maria. So, two lectures ago, I made mention of some of the ruling institutions of England, of the social order, and how some people lived in late medieval and early Tudor England. Today, we're going to turn to the other side of the equation, to the matter of religion in the early 16th century. And England was a highly religious society and it was, for the time being at least, a Catholic one, a part of the Catholic, which literally meant universal, church. This was, then, the Church, capital C. Rule by the capital C Church in many ways mirrored secular rule, rule by the monarch, who was again at times advised by Parliament as with secular rule there was a clear este- ecclesiastical church hierarchy as there were kings and the peerage with its ranking from the top down of dukes marquises earls viscounts and barons there was too a hierarchy of the ecclesiastical church there was of course the pope in rome the pope appointed cardinals who were his trusted advisers And then there were archbishops, bishops, priests, and deacons. This, as you might hear me say from time to time, and as you doubtless will encounter in readings, was an episcopal church structure, a structure based on the episcopacy, which is a Latin term borrowed from the Greek episkopos, which means overseers. Bishops were the main points of contact, the overseers of allocated church jurisdictions set amounts of land. The areas that bishops oversaw were known as dioceses, and there were 42 dioceses in England, which meant that the episcopacy had 42 bishops. Within England, there were also two archbishops in their archbishoprics one in York in the north, and one in Canterbury in the south. The Archbishop of York was second to the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop of Canterbury was thus the leader of the Church of England, the top bishop of the realm. The title and appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury, as we shall see, would become an important matter under Henry VIII. The entirety of the Church that engaged with the laity, lay people, or non-church members, were known as secular clergy. And again, as we noted before, a number of bishops sat in the House of Lords when Parliament was called to session, a matter that we'll come back to over the weeks that are to come. Most English people would have little contact with bishops, archbishops, and cardinals, Most would instead engage with members of the secular clergy who administered the laity, to the priests and deacons in particular, who administered church ceremony, tended to parishioners and members of church. Adding to this was another side of the equation. Regular orders, regular orders from Latin regula or rule, were individuals separate from the Catholic capital C church, who had dedicated their lives and sworn, in many cases, oaths, oaths to live by a rule. Regulars, living by rules, were often removed from society. There's a simple mnemonic device that might help you to remember. Regulars were removed, thus R for removed. Whereas seculars were engaged with society, thus S for society, seculars. R for removed, for regulars, and S for society, for secular. Orders resided with their regulars in monasteries and abbeys, and there were many orders. Benedictine, the largest order, was to become, or was home to, monks who had followed the rule of St. Benedict since the 6th century. There were then Cistercians who followed St. Bernard of Clairvaux. There were Augustinians and there were Trinidadians. Religious orders practiced charity regularly and were essential as places of refuge from life, but again they did not attend to spiritual matters for the laity. This was the job of secular clergy. As a rule of thumb, regulars lived in observation of the life of Christ by taking a rule they agreed that they would imitate Christ in many cases. Some would take vows of silence. Some practiced extreme asceticism. Prayer was frequent, and the imitation of Christ, to the better degree, ideal. But that's enough of that for now. The English laity enjoyed many holidays, or quite literally, holy days. And indeed, these were crucial to the village life to life in general, to the shape of the year in Tudor England, because Tudor people worked very hard. And it was on holy days that they were obliged to refrain from working. These were days when they would instead be expected to attend Mass, and then often also feast. These holy days were indeed known as feast days also, and there were some 45 days in the calendar year that could be counted on as times for refraining from work and feasting. One could plan on the Feast of the Circumcision, for instance, on January 1st. Five days later would be the Epiphany. There was the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin on the 15th of August, and All Saints on November 1st. There was, of course, Ash Wednesday and Shrove Tuesday. But by far the most important holy days were the days leading up to Easter and Easter itself, and many of these days would see reenactments and displays. On Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, bishops would often ride asses, processing into town, trailed by lay people or priests who would hold palm fronds. There was, of course, Good Friday, which happens to be today as I'm speaking, and then Easter, the time of the resurrection. These were essential days, not simply as times to prove personal piety, but as means to conduct charity, to benefit society, and to weave together more tightly the social fabric of life. They were days when the people of England, the laity and the clergy, celebrated and imitated events from the Bible, when they solidified social ties and practice, in short, their religion. There were, of course, laws in society, And laws would be dealt with by county justices of the peace, and by sheriffs, and by quarter sessions, as we noted a few podcasts ago. And that's another aside I'd like to get to, if you're willing to indulge me. Uh, Sheriff comes from the old English Saxon, from shire reeve, or a reeve of the law appointed by the king to administer the shire, a unit of land. And so it is. No driving for me right now, so no shire reeves to issue me speeding tickets. The many joys of quarantine. Many matters of discipline, of moral discipline, were in fact handled by the church. It was the local priest who would determine one's place in their proverbial flock, and it was the local priest who would determine who could and could not take the sacrament during Mass, who could partake in the Eucharist, who would observe the transubstantiation of host and consume than the body and blood of Christ. With the priest as the conduit to communion, the common union of the people with their Savior, Jesus Christ, they were indeed important. It was moreover priests who would hear confession and offer advice. Religion quite simply permeated all aspects of life. As a largely agrarian society, as a rural society, Religion was the fabric that held together much of daily life, both practical and spiritual. And having said all of this as a way of a brief introduction, I'd like to change gears just for a moment. I'd like for now to give you a picture of what it would be like to travel from one town to another in medieval England, late medieval and then thus early Tudor England, to travel from one parish in a town, to another parish, in another town. Stop for a moment and consider yourself a traveler in the 16th century. Let's say you're on the rolling hills of Warwickshire. It's summer, and so the days are long. The sun does not set until nearly 9.30 p.m., and it rises again before 5 a.m. The nights are short and warm. And while the days can be hot, The woods are vibrantly green, as are the fields. This is due to frequent rains and quickly passing clouds. Wolves still hunt farmers' flocks, and it would be well over a century before the last would be killed. Entering a town in the 16th century would be something very different from what it is now. Travel by horse or by cart or by carriage would move along bumpy country roads, often puddled from rain, and thick with mud in the valleys. Furrowed fields would pass, lined with English oaks, chestnuts, and ash. Wood pigeons, pheasants, and other birds would be seen. Robins could be heard singing, while magpies would rattle and jackdaws would crawl. But views would extend many miles. Most early modern people stayed within a few miles of the places where they were born, attending the same church, remaining in the same community. But as a traveler passing from one town to another, you would not at first encounter a city's town hall or its simple houses, its lined and cramped streets with wattle and daub structures and timber and frame over white plaster. You would most likely, indeed almost certainly see, instead, a spire from miles off. Sometimes you would hear their bells pealing. The spire, or if an old church, maybe towers, would then be affixed with crosses and weather vanes. These are the things you would see first. And as you approached a town, you would next see a smattering of houses lining the road. Or if it was a large town like York or Coventry, a medieval city wall. Still, dominating the skyline as you came nearer would be that spire, reaching closer to the heavens than any other structure, pointing towards God and his angels like a finger. Lichfield's Cathedral, with its three spires, to give you a sense of the height that these buildings could reach, was more than 250 feet tall. Salisbury Cathedral was 404 feet tall, and the largest in England was St. Peter's in London the most dramatic example by far of a spire which reached 489 feet. Parish spires might be well under 100 feet tall. Many were more modest. Upon entering a town, dirt roads would give way to cobblestone, and upon reaching a parish church, you might find a number of things. They were almost always the best-kept structures in town often made of solid stone and beams, clean, kept, and massive, and almost always at the very center of town, the heart of a space, the parish would not be the most... it would be the most impressive structure around. On an outside wall might be a stone indentation in a half circle or a full circle, templates to measure bread and assure for fair trade and transactions. Entering the church would reveal much more. It would bring you from one world to another. Illuminated by the bright summer light, the interior would reveal ornate decorations, walls colored in red and green and sometimes yellow stripes, with checkers painted, and in some cases biblical scenes, carved pews and organs. Windows of myriad stained colors would show the cycles of life, of birth to adolescence, of middle age to old age and death and windows might depict coats of arms and biblical figures, the Virgin, Jesus, apostles, saints. Dividing the room in two would be a large wooden carving, a rude screen with yet more ornate figures and images carved. Iconography, an image which would separate the laity from the clergy. The room might also be filled with smoke, with incense, of aromatic woods, of frankincense and myrrh. The language would no longer be English once you got to the other side of the rude screen. What you could hear would instead be Latin, a tongue that only the educated could unravel. And with Latin you may hear of the promise of eternal life, and in communion hoc es corpus meus. this is my body, Candles of beeswax and tallow would burn in alcoves dedicated to saints. Behind the rude screen would sit an altar of stone, an altar modeled on the one used for the sacrificial lamb, an old pagan institution appropriated in ancient times and fixed for the space of communion. Inside the nave would be monuments to the dead, to important county families, in some cases with tombs, with knights, lords and ladies, with men in armor, or in some cases, depictions of decomposing remains, of memento moris, of reminders of death and the transience of life. At the center or entry to the church might be a baptismal font, a font from which we get the inkwell and the name for our current system of printing letters, a font. This is where life and indeed death took place. This is where English people came closest to their Christian god. And all of this would soon change. Walls would soon be painted over in white lime. Service would be rendered in native English, and stained glass would be made clear. The altar stone would be replaced with a wooden communion table turned in alignment with the nave, and the rude screen disassembled, and in some cases burned. But this would not happen yet, not until Henry VIII's reign and the reigns of his children. And these will be topics for later podcasts.